Today on episode 22 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we're going to have some fun discussing a slap decision or two from this week and take a look at abusive process claims. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. We live in a media-rich world, and I know there are many other things you could be listening to, so thank you so much for taking the time to partake of my humble effort. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the boutique law firm of Morris & Stone, located in the beautiful city of Tustin, but serving all of California. Our primary practice areas are free speech and defamation, and of course, anti-slap law. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call me at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm, the top law firm. Morris at toplawfirm.com. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Aaron Morris Esk, ESQ. A couple of fantastic weeks at Morris & Stone. Last episode, I told you about a published opinion from the 6th District Court of Appeal vindicating our presentation of evidence at an internet defamation trial. In case you didn't hear that episode, when it became clear that my client was going to win on appeal, the party settled and notified the Court of Appeal that the case had settled, but the court found that the issues presented were so important that it issued its opinion anyway. I'm still really excited that the opinion will be a real benchmark and guide for the admission of evidence in all future internet defamation cases in California. And then, while still riding high from that published opinion, I prevailed on a trial in Los Angeles Superior Court. There is an important takeaway from the strategy I employed on that case, and I want to share it with you. There is a law I only recently became involved with called the Automotive Repair Act. It starts at Business and Professions Code Section 9880, It was passed way back in the 1970s, and it established the Bureau of Automotive Repair, or BAR, B-A-R, and imposes certain regulations on auto repair and body shops. For some reason, prosecuting actions under the Automotive Repair Act has become de rigueur, or as the French say, de rigueur, de rigueur, de rigueur. These actions are motivated by the ability to recover attorney fees. It's similar to actions brought under the ADA. The attorneys know there are no real damages in most instances, but bring the actions for the attorney's fees. In our case, the plaintiff was involved in a traffic accident and took his car to our client's body shop to be repaired. Now, under the Automotive Repair Act, a body shop is required to provide a written estimate, and the customer must authorize the repairs although that authorization can be verbal. Most of the time, the body shop will get a signed authorization to protect themselves, but it's not required. So the plaintiff brought in his car and authorized the work. Three days later, after our client had done significant work on the car, the plaintiff changed his mind and asked for his car back so he could take it someplace else. Well, initially our client took a very hard stance and said it would not return the car unless the plaintiff paid for the work that had been done. But in the interest of customer relations, our client eventually relented and told the plaintiff he could pick up his car at no charge. For four months, the car sat on our client's lot. Eventually, our client had had enough and wrote to the plaintiff and told him that if he did not pick up the car, it would be sold at auction to cover the storage fees. Plaintiff still did not pick up the car, and two months later, the car was sold at auction. Plaintiff then sued, claiming that our client was liable for the full price of the car, 
plus bazillions in punitive damages. Now, we take cases on what we call a quasi-pro bono basis, that the client really needs help, and we are outraged by the lawsuit. We reduce our rate to a very affordable rate in order to help out a person or company that otherwise would not be able to afford us. This was one of those cases. Now comes the important litigation strategy. Upon taking the case, I researched the Automotive Repair Act and found that there is no private right of action under that act. Attorneys sue for violations of the ARA all the time, but they do so in conjunction with some other theory. For example, they'll sue for negligence, claiming the negligence is shown by the violation of the ARA. Or they will sue for unfair competition, claiming that the unfair competition comes from the fact that the body shop violates the ARA. The ARA can also be used as a defense if a shop performs unauthorized work and then sues to recover the cost of that work, the customer can cite to the ARA for refusing to pay for the work. But here, plaintiff's attorney had sued under a claim captioned as violation of the Automotive Repair Act, and there simply is no such cause of action. The law is clear that for a private right of action to exist under a law such as the ARA, the wording of the law must leave no doubt that it was the intention of the legislature to create a private right of action, and there simply is no such language in the ARA. So what would you do? Your client is being sued under a claim that does not exist. Okay, my wife told me not to overdo it with the Jeopardy theme, but sorry, honey, I just love it. I would venture to say that 90% of attorneys would demur to the claim. But what would that have accomplished? With a little research, plaintiff's counsel would have realized that the claim had been improperly pled and would have amended to properly state the claim under a different theory. A motion for summary judgment would have been a better choice because that locks in the complaint. But there were a number of other claims that were not amenable to a motion for summary judgment. Plaintiff claimed he had never authorized the work. Our client claimed he did. So a motion for summary judgment might be successful on the ARA claim since there is no such private right of action. But that would have then allowed plaintiff's counsel to focus on the other claims. So what I did was I waited until my trial brief to raise the issue. Then at the conclusion of plaintiff's evidence, I brought a motion for judgment on the same basis which the court took under advisement. In the end, the court granted my motion and found in favor of my client, the auto shop, on all claims. I had a brief moment of panic because the judge initially indicated that he was going to split the baby and award half the value of the vehicle, which was $12,000. The judge acknowledged that my client had done nothing wrong, but he felt the buck had to stop somewhere. He felt that my client could have avoided all of this by simply requiring the customer to sign the estimate. On the other hand, the plaintiff could have avoided any damages at all by simply picking up his car before it was sold at auction. So the judge was going to make both parties responsible for half the value of the car. Now, I didn't agree with the judge's approach. He was kind of doing an apportionment of blame sort of thing. Either my client had authorization or he didn't. But in any event... I reminded the court that my motion for judgment was still pending and that there was no private right of action under the ARA. He took another look at my trial brief and motion for judgment, which I had submitted in writing, and agreed that there was no private right of action and found in favor of my clients on all claims. Despite this scary moment, which really just made the victory that much more satisfying, the takeaway remains that you should not have a knee-jerk response to any situation in litigation. This is not the first time this strategy of waiting until the trial to bring up a defective complaint has worked for me. We know from the judge's proposed verdict, before I reminded him of the pending motion, that he was going to award some money. If I had demurred to the ARA cause of action and plaintiff had amended it to be an unfair practices claim, he might have recovered attorney's fees, which would have eclipsed the fairly nominal damages. 
I hope you found that war story helpful, but let's get to some slap news. Our cases today all happen to be related to Hollywood. The first is an interesting unpublished decision that came down this week in the case of Kelly Van versus James Cameron. Kelly Van wrote and published a book called Sheila the Warrior, The Damned. She felt that the movie Avatar was a ripoff of Sheila the Warrior, so she sued in federal court for copyright infringement. Now, I'm not 100% sure what happened with the federal action, but it appears to have been dismissed on motion. Van then sued in state court, claiming that defendants had admitted the copyright infringement and had offered to pay her 5% of all profits from the movie. In the state claim, she typed in bold letters, This is not a copyright infringement lawsuit. She apparently understood the concept of raised judicata. Instead, she alleged she was suing for fraud for the representations made by defendants in the federal action. It was very obvious in Van's mind. Avatar was a ripoff of Sheila the Warrior, so anything defendants said to the contrary was a lie and a fraud. Specifically, Van was bothered by the claim that Avatar began as a scriptment written by James Cameron. A scriptment, in case you're not up to Hollywood lingo, is a document that is less than a script, but more than a treatment. It is a treatment that contains some sample dialogue. Van alleged that obviously Avatar could not have started as a scriptment because it had started out as her book, Sheila the Warrior. As proof, she offered Exhibit 18 to her complaint. What was Exhibit 18, you ask? Thanks for participating. Exhibit 18 was an email that Van wrote to her attorney during the federal action in which she wrote, How dare they presume to offer me a job when copyright infringement law clearly states that I will receive all profits derived from their copyright infringement. James Cameron and the other defendants brought an anti-slap motion to the new complaint. What would the basis be? Sorry, honey. This one was pretty obvious. Van was suing for what went on in the prior federal action, claiming that the lies by defendants had perpetrated a fraud on the court. She specifically alleged, if it were not for the fraudulent acts of the defendants and their attorney Rothstein, the defendants could not have prevailed against the plaintiff in court. Thus, she was suing for protected litigation activities, and she could not show a probability of prevailment. Here's another Hollywood case involving a great anti-slap motion making its way through the courts. This is the class action suit of Timothy Forsyth versus Motion Picture Association of America, Inc., along with the Walt Disney Company, Paramount Pictures, Sony Pictures, and several others. This case comes down to people smoking in the movies. I don't mean smoking in the theater, I mean the actors smoking in the movie. If you've ever watched, for example, any of the Lord of the Rings movies, you saw Gandalf smoking his long pipe on occasion. According to the class action, Gandalf puffing on his pipe, along with other movie images of smokers, will take the lives of over a million children in the future. The suit alleged that any smoking should be limited to R-rated movies, and that by rating movies at PG-13 or lower, when there are smokers in the movie, the defendants are killing our children. The defendants to the class action have all responded with an anti-slap motion, which was supposed to be decided on June 6th, but which has been continued. If you go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash episode 21, I've provided copies of the original complaint, the anti-slap motion, and the opposition if you're interested. The defendants assert, and I agree, that movie ratings are by their nature just opinions. Movie ratings come from an entity called the Classification and Rating Administration, C-A-R-A, and that entity has made very clear that it will not assign ratings based on certain bright-line factors, such as smoking, but instead issues a rating based on numerous factors. 
So with this action, plaintiff is seeking to force CARA to adhere to what plaintiffs believe the ratings should be. Now, I can't imagine that a court would ever compel a rating system to adhere to an imposed criteria. Thus, assuming the defendants can convince the federal court that this is a matter of public interest in order to satisfy the first prong of the anti-slap analysis, I think the anti-slap motion will be granted because I can't see how the plaintiff could show probable prevailment. I, I recommend taking a look at the papers. Defendants are represented by Munger, Tolles, and Olson, as well as Brian Cave. Now, the anti-slap motion is not up to Morris and Stone standards, of course, but it is very good. The opposition, on the other hand, is by attorneys I do not know, and it rings a little of desperation, including an argument that anti-slap motions should not be permitted in federal court. But I have to say that given the ridiculous nature of the class action, it actually sounds more plausible than I would have expected. I'll let you know in an upcoming episode how it turns out. Next comes the crazy Hollywood case of Paul Brodeur versus Atlas Entertainment, which I will refer to as the American Hustle case. I wrote about this case extensively on CaliforniaSlapLaw.com, so I I get this sense of deja vu that I may have talked about it here. I don't think so, but I'll keep the facts short just in case I did. In the film American Hustle, Jennifer Lawrence plays a somewhat ditzy character named Rosalind. The movie is set in the 1970s, and microwave ovens were still kind of a new thing. Back in the 70s, a guy by the name of Paul Brodeur wrote about the evils of microwave ovens, claiming that they were dangerous. In the movie... A discussion of microwave ovens ensues, and the character Rosalind says that microwaves cook the nutrition out of food. And then she says the line that led to Paul Brodeur's defamation action. After saying that microwave ovens cook the nutrition out of food, she holds up a magazine and says, I read it in an article by Paul Brodeur. Everyone I've discussed this case with asks, well, why would they use a real person's name? To which I answer, why wouldn't they? Admittedly, this reference to Paul Brodeur is obscure in the extreme, but if you set a movie in the 70s, a time period that some will be familiar with, not me, but certainly some, then part of the fun is making actual cultural references from that time period. If you're going to talk about the microwave controversies of the 70s, well, then you reference Paul Brodeur. He's one of the guys that wrote about it. And yes, I do talk to people about anti-slap cases, and that's why I'm probably shunned at parties. So anyway... Paul Brodeur was outraged that he'd been referenced as saying that microwave ovens cook the nutrients out of food because he'd never said such a thing. He contended that the reference in the movie ruined his reputation. Brodeur should have been flattered that anyone remembered him and laughed at the joke, but this is America, so he sued for a million dollars, claiming the statement was defamatory. The movie makers responded with an anti-slap motion. The trial judge, Terry Green, up in Los Angeles Superior Court, coincidentally the same judge who saw the brilliance of my arguments in the Automotive Repair Act case I discussed a few minutes ago, he denied the anti-slap motion by the movie studio. Judge Green concluded that the anti-slap motion did not even satisfy the first prong of the anti-slap analysis because he just did not think the subject matter was an issue of public interest. The movie appealed the denial of the anti-slap motion. And this past week, the California Court of Appeal reversed. As to the first prong of the anti-slap analysis, the court stated, We reject the notion that the character Rosalind's statement in the microwave oven scene is in no way related to the public interest in the film's other scenes. The relatedness, in our view, is clear. The microwave oven scene plainly drew on an issue of public interest in the 1970s, and plaintiff was an integral part of the issue at that time. Whether we consider the public interest in the movie as a whole, which is conceded and undeniable, or the public interest in the particular topic being discussed in the scene at issue, which likewise existed during the era being depicted, 
our conclusion remains the same. Defendant's conduct in writing and broadcasting the microwave oven scene was protected activity within the meaning of the anti-slap statute. Now, it's very interesting that the Court of Appeal considered the nature of the speech according to what would have been a matter of public interest in the time period depicted. That's kind of interesting. Now, as to the second prong, here is where counsel for Paul Brodura is made to look pretty bad. In a prior episode of the California Slap Law podcast, I spoke of how you must remember to provide a supporting declaration. It's easy in some cases where it really just comes down to legal issues to never think about providing a declaration from your client. But the statute 425.16 specifically says that it has to be based on declarations and some courts take that literally and use it as an excuse to deny the motion if there's no declaration provided. The flip side of that coin is that plaintiff must be sure to provide a declaration that establishes the elements of his claim. So here, what was the entire point? What was the basis of Brodeur's claim? You're waiting for the Jeopardy theme, aren't you? Brodeur was suing, claiming that he never said that microwaves cook the nutrients out of food. But there was not any declaration from Brodeur to attest to that fact. So right out of the gate, the Court of Appeals said that Brodeur had failed to show a likelihood of success because there was zero evidence that he had never made the statement attributed to him in the film. That very obvious point of an anti-slap motion, you have to support the position you're arguing, and he hadn't provided a declaration. But I suppose Brodeur and his counsel can take solace from the fact that the Court of Appeal went on to basically hold that Brodeur never would have won anyway. Here's what they said, quote, Rosalind's comment in the microwave oven scene, in any event, is not reasonably susceptible of a defamatory meaning. American Hustle is, after all, a farce. We doubt any audience member would perceive any of Rosalind's dialogue as an assertion of objective fact. So that's it for Brodeur. The ridiculous case is over. And to finish our Hollywood Slap Cases segment, we turn to the case of Christian Slater. I like Christian Slater as an actor, but I've noticed that when he is cast in a television show, it is automatically doomed to failure. Recent examples include My Own Worst Enemy, which lasted eight episodes, The Forgotten, which made it almost two seasons, Breaking In, almost two seasons, Mind Games, one season. But he did win a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for a current show called Mr. Robot. Anyway, Christian Slater was being interviewed by Interview Magazine, and they asked him about his father, who is also an actor named Michael Hawkins. Christian Slater tells the story of how he and his father were estranged for a number of years, but that he is very excited that his father is back in his life. But then, like all actors seem to do, he feels compelled to trash his father as a means to justify some aspect of his own behavior, I suppose. So, in the interview, he states that his father is a manic-depressive schizophrenic. I am so happy to have my manic-depressive schizophrenic father back in my life. He didn't really say that, but that was the gist of the article. Well, it turned out to be a very short reconciliation because Dad turned around and sued Christian Slater for defamation. I'm guessing they aren't doing any Thanksgivings together. Dad's acting career is not doing all that great in the first place, and that little comment by Sonny Boy is not going to help things. Christian Slater responded to his father's defamation action with an anti-slap motion. The first issue with Christian Slater's anti-slap motion is whether the controversy is a matter of public interest. With these celebrity cases, the courts have come to engage in a weighing process to determine the relative star status of the celebrity. Interestingly, the judge, Judge Susan Bruguera in Los Angeles Superior Court, specifically cited to Christian Slater's recent award and popularity in Mr. Robot. 
She did say, however, that it will not always automatically be the case that a Hollywood celebrity is a matter of public interest for purposes of the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. She also took into account that the comment in question concerning uh, growing up with a mentally ill parent, that's a matter of public interest. And then she went back to the show Mr. Robot and said that mental illness is one of the issues explored in the show. I'm not sure what that has to do with anything, but that's what she thought made it a matter of public interest. But Hollywood people don't always get this treatment. Last year, we had a case brought by a guy named Mark Amin, I guess it's pronounced, A-M-I-N, Mark Amin. Mark Amin dumped $1.5 million into a film called Good Kill. I happened to see it on HBO a couple of weeks ago. No, not terrible, but I can't really recommend it. Anyway, Mark Amin invests money in the film and is supposed to get what is called in the showbiz, a lexicon, a single card screen credit. In the credits, it was supposed to say, Mark Amin, producer. Instead, he ended up in the credits along with two other producers. So he sued and the film company brought an anti-slap motion claiming that the movie was protected speech. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Susan Bryant-Deason denied the anti-slap motion, finding it did not meet the first prong. So Mark Amin defeated the anti-slap motion, but it was a double burn. He didn't get his single card credit, and it was found as a matter of law not to be interesting enough to be a matter of public interest. But back to Christian Slater, who was found to be interesting enough. The first prong was met, but as to the second prong of the anti-slap analysis, Judge Bruguera held that Slater's dad was unlikely to prevail because of the context. Slater is not a mental health professional, so his diagnosis of his father's condition could not reasonably be taken as an actual medical or mental diagnosis. This is just a trial court ruling on the motion at this point, but I think it is interesting to follow the analysis. So to wrap things up, a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that I was going to talk about abusive process cases in the next episode. And I know I never should do that because inevitably something big happens at my firm that I want to talk about and I don't get to talk about the promised topic. So let me make good on my representation now and I'll just talk a little about a little bit about abusive process claims. I want to hit on this topic because I see attorneys getting into trouble by including abusive process claims in their complaints. It's as though they view an abusive process claim as a means to get around having to wait to win an action in order to sue for malicious prosecution. I often see them uh, alleged in cross complaints and, and they're always a slap. Everything you need to know about abusive process claims vis-a-vis anti-slap motions, or as they say in French, vis-a-vis is discussed in the 2006 Supreme Court case of Rasheen v. Cohen, which for its part cited to one of my earlier published decisions. One might say the Supreme Court reached its conclusion via vis, my earlier case. Anyway, Rasheen v. Cohen was a very fact-intensive case, but I can summarize it down to a few key points. In the underlying case, plaintiffs brought a writ of possession for a house they'd purchased from Rasheen's father. Rasheen lived in the house and would not leave. Plaintiffs were represented by an attorney named Barry Cohen. Cohen filed a new action for property damage and some other claims against Rasheen, and somewhere along the way had Rasheen declared a vexatious litigant. Rasheen got that order reversed on appeal, and on remand, he filed a cross-complaint against Cohen for abuse of process. Rasheen claimed the vexatious litigant motion was somehow illegal, that Cohen had lied about serving Rasheen, and that Cohen was complicit in allowing his client to execute on a property in Nevada, knowing the judgment was invalid. Cohen responded with an anti-slap motion, arguing that all of Rasheen's complaints had to do with Cohen's litigation activities. The trial court agreed and granted the anti-slap motion, but on appeal, the Court of Appeal reversed, 
holding that some of the alleged conduct did not fall under the litigation privilege. The Court of Appeal concluded that Cohen could be liable if Rasheen could indeed prove that Cohen enforced a default judgment obtained through the filing of false proofs of service. The Court of Appeal recognized that there was a split of authority on the issue and followed a case called Drum v. Blue Fox and Associates, which had held that executing on a property is not a communicative act and does not therefore fall under the litigation privilege. Under the reasoning of the Drum case, the Court of Appeal concluded that the filing of the allegedly false declarations was a communicative act, but executing on the resulting default judgment was not. The Court of Appeal concluded that the litigation privilege does not establish a complete defense to the abuse of process cause of action. On the other side of the split were a couple of appellate decisions, including the one I handled, O'Keefe versus Compa, where the Court of Appeal had concluded that any execution efforts following a judgment were privileged because they are an extension of the judicial process and are logically and legally related to the realization of the litigation objective, that is, collection of a judgment. Cohen appealed to the Supreme Court, and the court took up the case because of the obvious split between the brilliant reasoning of the appeal I had handled and the drum decision. In the end, the Supreme Court decided the matter for public policy reasons. As the Supreme Court stated, it is desirable to create an absolute privilege, not because we desire to protect the shady practitioner, but because we do not want the honest one to have to be concerned with subsequent derivative actions. For our justice system to function, it is necessary that litigants assume responsibility for the complete litigation of their cause during the proceedings. To allow a litigant to attack the integrity of the evidence after the proceedings have concluded, except in the most narrowly circumscribed situations such as extrinsic fraud, would impermissibly burden, if not inundate, our justice system. The Supreme Court concluded that it is far preferable for all claims to be litigated in the initial action. Even if Rasheen was correct that false declarations were used, there is already a process to address that issue. He had already successfully moved to vacate the default. There was no need for a new and separate action or claim. Sorry, but I have to read from the case a little to make this holding clear. The Supreme Court held, Accordingly, we conclude that if the gravamen of the action is communicative, the litigation privilege extends to non-communicative acts that are necessarily related to the communicative conduct, which in this case included acts necessary to enforce the judgment and carry out the directive of the writ. Stated another way, unless it is demonstrated that an independent non-communicative wrongful act was the gravamen of the action, the litigation privilege applies. Here, because the execution of the judgment did not provide an independent basis for liability separate and apart from the filing of the false declarations of service, the gravamen of the action was the procurement of the judgment, not its enforcement. So the bottom line, can you state an abusive process action that will survive an anti-slap motion? Well, to proceed in an action for abusive process, a litigant must establish that the defendant, one, contemplated an ulterior motive in using the process, and two, committed a willful act in the use of the process not proper in the regular conduct of the proceedings. Well, that doesn't sound too tough, but in practice, the second element is the killer. The Supreme Court has held the mere filing or maintenance of a lawsuit, even for an improper purpose, is not a proper basis for an abusive process action. Alternatively stated, Neither the initiation of a meritless claim nor the continued prosecution of a claim after it becomes apparent that the claim is meritless can support an abusive process cause of action. Such conduct may support a malicious prosecution cause of action, but not one for abusive process. As the Supreme Court stated, 
Continued pursuit of meritless litigation for an improper collateral purpose, although actionable under malicious prosecution principles, is not separately actionable under a abusive process theory. Now, some abusive process claims do survive, but it's a long shot. In a case called Booker versus Roundtree, one of those ADA attorneys sued a restaurant because it did not have a handicapped parking space and the counter was too high. The restaurant settled for about $6,000, put in a handicapped spot and lowered the counter and thought life was good. It turned out the attorney had filed an identical action against the same restaurant the same day as the first action, but with a different plaintiff. So as soon as the first action settled, the attorney just served the second action. The restaurant owner cross-complained for abusive process, stating that the attorney had gamed the system. The restaurant would not have settled the one case if it, if it had known that a second case was in the wings. The attorney responded with an anti-slap motion, but incredibly, the trial court and the court of appeal both held that the conduct of the attorney did amount to an abusive process. The key there was that the trial court concluded this sleazy process violated the requirement to mention related cases. Here's the Court of Appeals holding in Booker v. Roundtree. We cannot see how there is any communicative conduct in issue here. The gravamen of the cross-complaint is failure to serve the underlying action until a prior suit had settled. There is nothing communicative about that. There is no allegation a statement was made, a representation offered, or any assertive conduct that was a speech substitute. So as you can see, under some very narrow circumstances, there still might be a situation where an abusive process action could survive an anti-slap motion, but proceed with extreme caution. In Rasheen v. Cohen, the Supreme Court recognized that it was basically eviscerating abusive process claims, so there won't be many circumstances where they can survive. If you find yourself about to type the words abusive process into a complaint or cross-complaint, take the time to really research the issue to see if your action is based on a non-communicative act. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. It's not like I use the phrase often, but I've always pronounced de rigueur, kind of giving it a French flavor instead of de rigueur, de rigueur. But I looked it up as I was making this recording, and I found that the proper pronunciation is not nearly so elegant. De rigueur. De rigueur. De rigueur. De rigueur. Or as the French say, de rigueur. De rigueur. De rigueur. Live and learn. As to my court victory, there are some additional fun facts. It was a bench trial, and the judge asked us to submit our closings in writing, limiting us to just five pages. Because of the page limitation, I incorporated my trial brief and motion for judgment by reference. Then the judge called us back to court, ordering that all parties and their attorneys, along with the court reporter, be present. The judge obviously wanted to avoid the time of having to prepare a statement of decision, so he was going to rule from the bench and have it all taken down by the court reporter. As I stated earlier, he indicated that he was going to award $12,000 to the plaintiff, and that would have potentially come with attorney's fees depending on the cause of action uh, he based those damages. He ruled in my client's favor on all the causes of action except the Automotive Repair Act. I reminded him that there, there is no private right of action under the ARA, so after confirming the fact for himself, he then ruled in my client's favor. 
having him rule on the other claims first before I reminded him of my position regarding the ARA kept him from finding liability on some other theory. Now, within two hours of arriving back at my office, I received an email from opposing counsel citing to a case he felt held that there was a private right of action under the ARA and saying that he was going back to court ex parte to show the court the authority. I explained to him that there really is no, I wish I had cited this case before you found in favor of the other side, so I'm going to court ex parte to show it to you motion. He never brought the ex parte motion, so we submitted a judgment in favor of our clients. Another satisfied client. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk with you soon.